Hello and welcome to the XXLA Architects Podcast, a show featuring Los Angeles's leading women in architecture. I'm your host, Audrey Sato, and today I have some big news to share with you all. This episode's going to be a little bit different. Annie Chu, who was featured in episode 31, graciously offered to interview me for this episode, and I was completely honored to accept. This is the point where I usually tell you some background information about my guests, but you all sort of know me already, so I'll keep it brief. I'm an architect and president of Sato Architects, Inc., a podcast host, and past president of AWA Plus D. I also taught at Cal Poly Pomona in the Department of Architecture, where I got my master's after attending Brown University. I have some other news, which is that I have a new role to add to my list. I'm going to become a mother in a couple of months. So I'll have my hands full keeping a little human and a small business alive. And because of that, this will be the last podcast episode, at least for now. I want to take this opportunity to thank all of my listeners, supporters, and previous guests, because this has been a really great experience, and I appreciate you all more than you know. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Annie. So we should start, huh? I guess so. Okay. All right. <laughs> hey, Audrey. Hi, Annie. <laughs> it's so fun to be able to sit on the other side of the table <laughs> with you. So um, I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit about your formative years when you were growing up in Honolulu and how your upbringing maybe continued to influence your aesthetics or your design? Sure. I think... Aesthetically, it's really hard to talk about a style or a particular look, but growing up in Hawaii definitely influenced my mindset and my approach to architecture and design. Um, I was not interested and I did not consider architecture as a profession for myself in Hawaii because I thought buildings were kind of boring. <laughs> um, I think... You know, growing up there, nature was so beautiful and there was such a connection to the environment because of how pragmatic, like the house I grew up was designed where we always had the windows open, you always felt the trade wind breeze, you always knew when it was like the Kona winds, which is like Santa Ana winds here. So that connection to um, the specificity of the weather that day and the sense of place like I consider my first architectural memories as lying in bed looking at the curtains moving mm -hmm. and um How beautiful yeah really really beautiful sort of everyday memories of like watching the banana tree shadows on the the windows you know in that sense um when I design today, I'm always thinking about that connection to place and considering environment. But um, as far as like an aesthetic preference, I, I can't say that there is something in particular that, you know, formed how I design today. My upbringing was also very pragmatic. Like my mom 
was really into recycling. So mm. she started like a paper recycling program and she brought her own like cloth shopping bags and um, did all this stuff that just wasn't really cool back then. Yeah. Um, like I remember her washing out the Ziploc bags to reuse them even. And yeah. like, it seems like such a weird thing now because now we're all so um, used to doing all these things. But at the time it was so new. Yeah. I'm washing out my Ziploc bag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in undergraduate, you majored in architectural studies and, and visual arts at Brown, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. And what were you exposed to at Brown that you still remember or now you recall maybe actually still relevant to you today? Yeah. Was there any like experiences, you know, of mentors or field trips, you know, or even from, you know, back even in grade school years or throughout your education that might have formed your worldview and shaped who you are and how you feel and think about the world? Yeah. So I think going back to educational experiences in Hawaii, I was really fortunate to have gone to really great schools with, you know, really amazing teachers. And um, actually, I think my kayaking coaches were probably some of the biggest adult influences on me because they created such a um, caring and supportive environment. So they kind of modeled to me what that looks like to be a, a leader. Yeah. Um, I remember uh, actually one of the things I had a piano teacher and one of the things that he said to me I think he was using reverse psychology uh. <laughs> <laughs> so he he told me I was playing something and I hit a wrong note and I kind of stopped and he said Audrey it's okay no note is a wrong note it's just different and I like kind of like got taken aback and looked at him and I was like oh this is new because he was a new teacher to uh. me I was oh okay and I think that has always stuck with me in terms of like how I sort of approach the world because yeah. it was the first time somebody put that into words and I really connected with something I never heard before yeah no note is a wrong note that's such a great quote yeah I remember my piano teacher said play through play through <laughs> <laughs> he also well this guy also told me you don't need to practice just uh -huh. practice when you want and uh -huh. I, I thought Oh, that's weird. Like my other teacher told me I had to practice. My mom tells me I have to practice. Mm -hmm. And I think that worked on me. Right. You it works on you on the reverse psychology. <laughs> so like how about at Brown? Like do you recall like a particularly influential teacher or an experience or or a class or something you learned somewhere or a field trip? For sure. Um the reason I actually went to Brown was that I had no clue. I was very honest with myself. I had no clue what I wanted to do with my life. But you wanted to leave the island, huh? Um, I didn't want to go to the University of Hawaii. Yeah. I thought I wanted to come back to Hawaii, though. So I knew I wanted to go to college and I wanted to find a career that I could do at home. Mm -hmm. And that was my only goal, um, really. I didn't... And I wanted to somehow help people, but I didn't know what that looked like. So when I first went to Brown, I 
I chose it because there was no set curriculum, gen mm -hmm. like a general ed sort of program. You mm -hmm. could take whatever you wanted. You could take grades or no grades, pass or fail. Like all you had to do was by the time you graduated, you had to have enough credits within your major. Uh -huh. So you could change your major a lot. So I did that. <laughs> and so I started off thinking I was going to be a doctor because that seemed like it made sense. I could help people. Yeah, and, you and I, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, and I had a creative personality, so I was always taking art classes, but, like, I think I started off with, like, geology and oceanography and environmental science as maybe that might be my my major. And then by the time, I think, in my sophomore year, I was like, well, I have, I'm on this path. I've been taking all these art classes. I should just stick with that as a major mm -hmm. and I had heard about Dietrich Neumann who is this really great professor and that his architecture history classes are amazing so I, I kind of went to one only because I thought well all these people are raving about it let's yeah. see what it's let's about, see what it's about. And I just fell in love with it so his classes in particular opened my eyes to what architecture could be outside of my experience of normal people buildings in Hawaii and like really old brick buildings at Brown. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, that I think he was really influential there. And then my thesis professor Sheila Bond also was really encouraging as well. So it was it was great. It was lucky that I found that there. Yeah. And because Brown's so flexible, I also got to travel abroad with uh the Cornell architecture and art program in Rome. Oh, and wow. I chose it just because they wouldn't let me take architecture classes, but I just wanted to be near the architect yeah. at your studios. Right. And that, you know, just traveling abroad and seeing all those buildings, like, you know, Rome is a museum, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, after Brown, you went on and did your master's of architecture at Cal Poly Pomona, right? where you won a lot of design awards as a student. And then you went on to become a lecturer at the architecture department for like, it seems like about six years, right? About five, five years, years, yeah. Now, huh? mm -hmm. And then like, what made you go from Brown, like the East Coast now to California, specifically to Pomona, um, you know, and, and then stay there and then taught? Yeah. Um. I wasn't particularly fond of the East Coast. I enjoyed it for the time. It was a really good experience that I went to someplace very different um, than where I was from, but I couldn't stand the winters. And I grew up in a place where it was very diverse and I didn't feel like a minority. And I went to somewhere where I was immediately kind of seen as other and really treated as a minority, which felt very shocking to me. So I think moving west, it just felt right for me. Um, I wanted to be closer to home. My grandparents, who I, I lived in the, the same house with them growing up, they passed while I was in college, and it just felt hard to be so far. So that was kind of behind the idea of, well, anywhere in California seems good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell me a little bit about... The, the teaching part at Cal Poly? So um, I really enjoyed the experience at Cal Poly. I think because the schools I went 
to like Brown, the student body is very diverse. And similarly at Cal Poly, the student body and the, the teachers there were very diverse. Mm-hmm. And so it also felt like a really supportive environment where nobody was like sabotaging each other or something like right. stuff you hear about Less at politics. other schools. Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed that experience. It's interesting because people, some people ask me like, well, from Brown to Cal Poly, isn't that like a weird transition? And I said, well, architecture was way harder than surviving at Brown. (laughs) I mean, if you can do architecture school, you can survive at an Ivy League school. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's another story for another time about the boot camp, you know, almost a hazing culture of starting out in architecture school. I always feel like that's part of that inaccessibility for people. I mean, what happens if someone is like physically not able to sustain that kind of work culture, you know, and then they they won't be able to go into architecture. But anyways, that's it for another time. I I had students who I felt badly because I knew... Physically, they're suffering, yeah. Yeah, physically, um, you know, they may have gone into it uh, recovering from an illness or something, and it just wasn't the right time in their life to try to do something so difficult. And it feels really hard because you know that that's not fair to them, but at the same time, it's not fair to their classmates. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's tough. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of uh, mental challenges, too, to kind of stay with that strict schedule it's like you enter a monastery you know yeah (laughs) pretty much yeah yeah but yeah I was really lucky to be able to teach there though like um, the question you were actually asking me about (laughs) um I remember I told my professors when I was graduating that I was kind of interested in teaching as a career path and I I would want to do that and like two weeks before the semester started somebody couldn't teach and they were scrambling so they asked me so I think you know if that's something you want to do or like anything in life you kind of have to put out there what you want to do so that people know it's somewhere in their minds when they they're looking for someone yeah so was it a first year studio or what year were you Mm -hmm. Uh I taught all first year I didn't teach anything else and I really enjoyed it I stopped because between running my own practice and then driving out there like three times a week and I was getting burnt out to the point where I didn't enjoy anything. Yeah. I was just too tired to appreciate anything. Yeah. I I feel like also, you know, having taught all the different years, first year is actually the hardest and the most um, physically and mentally demanding. And you feel, first of all, so responsible because you're setting up the entire view of how a person views, you know, in architecture education or even that that as a career. So like, you know, you can make or break someone's ambition to be in the profession too. But yeah, it's actually first year is harder. Yeah, I think to teach. But um, so you've been in sole practice and for like 11 years, right? Almost. Oh, yeah, I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) So, and then with more than a decade, you're just, you know, helming your own firm. What's your vision of an ideal practice? Oh, well. Like a day in the life kind of story of (laughs) how you want to see yourself. Because I know that you, you you mentioned earlier, 
you know, is there a career that can like have me connected to home still, right? Um, that's a tough one because, I mean, right now I'm feeling pretty happy with what my career has become. I wouldn't say that I ever thought this was what I would be happy with like ten years ago. I don't know. I mean, I really admire people who've grown their firms to have like five or ten employees. I don't see myself as being somebody who would grow a fifty-person firm or something like that. I don't even see myself really as being a ten-person firm unless I had a partner. partner.、Mm-hmm. So without having that partner. I think you know. Right now, I have a part-time employee who's a friend of mine and who I love working with. So that's been enough growth for me for now. <laughs> no, I think it's also depending on the type of work you want to do, where you want to be involved in it, you know, all the way through.、Mm-hmm. So that you know, you only have 24 hours in the day. So that somewhat determines the size, unless you have. Partners. Somewhere along the line, I heard people say something like, "If you have one principal, then the maximum amount of staff that you can really engage and handle is six." I heard that too. Yeah, yeah. And then I also heard that, like you know, because we're sharing all this stuff too. I like, I like it when other women architects will share. Okay, I heard this about business or something because we don't ever get trained in that. Is that six is a really hard number to sustain as a firm? Yeah, you, know, you have the expenses, and you 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 have not enough income to kind of like make it work or something like that. So, yeah, but I think that the sole practitioner model with like maybe one or two, or even part time, seems to be a very sustainable model too. Yeah, I don't fully understand how people make the jump from like having. Just themselves to having like another full-time employee to having like five full-time employees because as you grow, like it seems like you have to understand that growth might not mean that your own income will grow <laughs> or your own productivity might grow. It takes a long time until a model of however many people you're working with becomes. More profitable. Yeah, it's、uh, there's a lot of sort of hitting your head on the wall and going into rooms that have no light and just <laughs> wishing for the best, you know. <laughs> and one day you looked around and there were like, oh, there's five people. Oh, another day you look, oh, there's nine people. How did that happen? I remember that phase, and the first employee was like the hardest. It's like you feel so responsible for、yeah. their livelihood. Like, can I really do this? You know. Yeah.、Um, But you seem to be having like, making it work. So, well, for your firm too, it's probably easier because you have larger projects、mm. where they last longer, and there's there's not as much having to go out and find the work and like doing all the invoicing and stuff. Like for me, with the smaller projects, there's so many more projects that I would need to find to keep a full time person busy. I think. Yeah. So unless I was to also jump scale a little bit, I think you know it'd be hard for me to grow. Yeah, I think、um, long time ago when I first started, Julie Eisenberg told me that even if I'm four or five person, I need to have、um, an office manager. Yeah. Right. And so you have. How do I carry that person? Yeah. You know, in the in the billings and stuff to make it work. And then Kate Diamond, I was always impressed by you know when I first started, she brought me to her office. She opened up a lateral 
file drawer and there were all these files in there and she said look at these these are all RFPs that we've answered to maybe you get one job out of 12 of these yeah you know? so so there were all these things about like how do you go to the next step and like what do you need infrastructurally and like it's just kind of an expectation of how much work you need to do to get work right, right? none of the stuff that we learned anywhere in school or right or even like sometimes even shared amongst you know other practitioners because you kind of know just people in your generation and they might be starting out just like you you know like, yeah and it's like the previous generation when they have the graces to kind of give you a few tips well anyways let's talk a little bit about the current projects in your firm because you have a great portfolio of residential architecture and you know there's um, a lot of you know I, I even remember going up to your website and you have quite a bit of recognition even from house you know every oh. year and stuff so there's a growing reputation for that and um, somewhere in the I think another article that I read you mentioned that you might be interested in housing development. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's something I think about a lot, especially so right now, my current life, I'm pregnant and I'm adding a bedroom and bathroom to my own house. Uh -huh. And that has shown me how quickly I can move on my own projects where there's no client to manage. Uh -huh. And there's no um, there's a lot more, I guess, flexibility because I'm making the decisions and if, if you know something happens okay well what do we need to do like there's no having to talk through something with yeah. somebody I get it your husband is not an architect right right uh, <laughs> um, it works the opposite if you happen to be both architects then. so what would be a dream project like if you ever you know think of you know looking forward mm -hmm. and stuff what type of project would you want to work on like that you said that would be an ultimate thing i really want to experience that maybe a couple years ago i would have said multifamily housing was a pretty e not easy but like natural next step for me and i would really want to um, experience that i still think that that's true um you're still interested in the in the housing project i'm still interested in housing at different scales but i think it has to be the right partnership like we had a pretty terrible contractor on that project and that made it just really feel almost like it's like not worth it yeah you know and so i think wanting to still do that but making sure the, the right team is assembled maybe doing that for myself right so you eliminate the the trio relationship between the developer the architect and the contractor yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't do it on my own, so I'd have to find like an investor. Find an investor, but then you will be the developer too. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, that would be ideal because we've only done one project, uh huh, 12 unit condo, and we'll never do it again because yeah. at the very end, the contractor would not even let me have two different colors of paint. Oh my gosh. Yeah, no. So that was very um, discouraging. Yeah. Yeah. That's heartbreaking. And that's when you even have to get like special insurance because, you know, that's a very risky typology. Yeah. You know? People get sued all the time. And said, it's not worth it. But anyways, yeah. But I think that's a good thinking on like trying to develop yourself. Yeah. 
and, and not even like 12 units, like smaller scale yeah. stuff. Right. <laughs> um, who are the top three architects, or maybe one or two, or however many, that you've looked at, you know, maybe throughout your life or currently that kind of inspires you? It's hard because... Or it's like project by project, right? Yeah, it's not particularly like a body of work of a particular practitioner. Yeah, and I would say too, my work is so different from these people. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. It's hard to um, talk about in a way. You know, at the very beginning when I was inspired to look at architecture, I was, as a career, um, I remember seeing uh, work by Louis Kahn and Tadao Ando as just um, these striking light and shadow, you know. The silence and the monumental. Yeah, yeah the yeah. monumental. That that really um, got me interested in architecture because I didn't know it could make you feel something, mm. you know, until that point. So I think, you know, that that would have to be, I guess, people who I mentioned. Yeah. Um, and then I think one of the, one of the architects who I most enjoyed teaching about, especially in first year was So Fujimoto because uh, I felt like his projects were like really good first year projects uh -huh. where it's like such a simple idea that ends up being very beautiful or very bold. You're also a surfer and a gardener too. So yeah. I'm curious how these interests, like surfing in particular, show up in your in your work in the spaces that you create what i meant by that is like you talked about louis khan and ando's work it's like this is something i felt he said this yeah. is like the my feeling of architecture came from those first encounters so when you're surfing i can imagine it's a full mind body experience mm -hmm. and how does that kind of experience compare to like say the body in architecture space experience yeah i think in surfing there's a lot of waiting also so like i think that feeling of sitting on your board in the middle of the water and having the sun and the wind and you, you just are fully immersed in that environment that is very similar of a feeling of connection i guess to the to the earth or to the elements that in architecture I sometimes feel yeah but not always like with surfing you always feel that connection but yeah. with with architecture you sometimes feel that and yeah. that that emotional connection or rootedness to a place I think and then I would say like actually catching a wave and all of that is very different <laughs> yeah but the the waiting periods of just kind of being that's interesting yeah because like when me who don't know anything about surfing would say well it must be something about riding the wave and you know that <laughs> at some point your body is like this you know in sync with the wave and maybe there's some architectural equivalence but it's mm. actually the waiting part that's interesting i think so like if i were to create an analogy the um the main break that i grew up surfing in hawaii i'm very familiar with how that right feels or uh -huh. how how the left breaks and so there's something too about like your body kind of knowing how to respond to a certain place or being able to anticipate without thinking when you're surfing 
a wave at a place that you're familiar with versus somewhere new, which Mm -hmm. I guess is kind of similar to how your body acts in architecture too. Um, But yeah, it's it's hard to say because I don't... The actual feeling of surfing a wave, I have a very hard time expressing Uh in words. Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, there's a draw to residential architecture because it's a space that we experience over and over and over and over again. So it's that familiar place you know yeah type of thing and and you're watching things that you're waiting for something or you seeing very minute changes or appreciating something that you didn't see the day before or like a year before or something like that Um, there must be some similarity about that waiting thing too so um how about gardening (laughs) (laughs) like Uh, you know watching something grow and putting that effort into it Oh, yeah, I think it's really rewarding. Um, I mean, I like food. Mm. So so <laughs> growing my own food is like kind of taking it to that level, I guess, that yeah. next level. And um, my mom always gardened, too. So I think I've always appreciated like watching something become. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I guess, yeah, in a sense, I never thought about it that same way as architecture project we watch something and we hope it will grow yeah (laughs) yeah and sometimes it doesn't sometimes it doesn't grow (laughs) sometimes it's not allowed to grow sometimes it comes out like shrivelly or something or yeah that even didn't get to bloom or you know yeah so i i think that that's really interesting i never thought about that that way too but that kind of nurturing and an effort to make something grow, right? And patience. And patience and seeing and kind of going through every hurdle, you know, fighting the past, you know, like fighting the <laughs> building department. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, and all the other departments. <laughs> yeah. All the clearances, you know, that you do to get... It's a miracle when, some, when something gets built, really. I don't understand why it's so hard. Like, it doesn't have to be that hard don't you think i don't know it's like after COVID too it's just a waiting game when you have a lot of clearances we never experienced anything that that you know extended before it's sort of like people are mired in mud or something every clearance is like a waiting for someone to act mm-hmm. and prodding and you know um waiting and then coming back and prodding and it just takes a very long time and it just makes it this I think it makes it even harder for a lay person to even approach developing a project yeah when you have to you know pay your consultants to completely manage that extended process yeah you know and I remember you know like even some of the you know Mulholland clearances like when you go to hearings and stuff and then somebody wants to see another rendering and then like someone's paying for that rendering right right and that's one rendering out of the five they've already seen you know that they want to see a couple more who can afford that right so it it feels very wrong yeah (laughs) you know yeah that that process is um so you and i both attended that aia la open forum about 
you know, just recently, yeah. the acts of hate and violence against the AAPI community. Mm-hmm. And if I remember correctly, you were very vocal about how the media portrays these acts of violence, the perpetrators and the victims. Can you speak a bit more to that? And as members of an AI, AAPI community, what are some things that we can do, some actions that we can do at this challenging time? Yeah, so what really um, kind of set me off was uh, seeing how the media was portraying the um, killing of all the, in, in Atlanta, in Georgia, and how they were saying, oh, you know, the shooter was having a bad day and like all the victims, oh, they were, it wasn't a hate crime. Um, they just happened to all be Asian. Oh, he had some, you know, sexual perversion. And it's like, so you're saying that they died because they were Asian women? Like, uh-huh. because they worked at a spa? Like, yeah. what are, why are you talking about these people's deaths as though it's somehow less bad because they were Asian women? <laughs> like, yeah. why, why aren't we talking about how awful it was that anybody died period first of all and then the value that of their lives that got taken away because somebody had a horrible outlook on life or like had mental issues or you know what did a hate crime i mean i don't see how it's not a crime of hate it's like very similar to like you know the all the uh, victims of rape, right? They always, like, traditionally, they would always say, what What did this person do wrong to attract this crime to themselves? Yeah. Right? Rather than looking at the perpetrators and, like, the victim gets sucked into being responsible for this. Right. And, you know, what, what do you think we can do, us being a part of the AAPI community? Yeah. So, I I think, um, and, and, for me, the focus on, you know, changing how we talk about these sorts of crimes, the language itself where like, you know, she was raped, it was like, no, he raped her. It's um, making this thing that happened to someone not, well, it just happened to them. No, somebody did that. Like, make it more um, in intentional i had seen somebody wrote about it and i can't remember the name of who wrote about it that wasn't something i thought about before but it's so true it kind of minimalizes these really awful crimes and kind of lets people feel like oh this is just something that happens to women no it's something that doesn't have to happen to women um it it happens because usually a man does that right that's so true and then i think that in terms of from the a lot of the awakening of like through the black lives yeah. matters movement and stuff a lot of us begin to kind of really kind of look into the mirror which you know again this is the model minority myth right. about you know asian which is like you know how many hundreds of different kinds of asians that made that asian diaspora but um like we were always you know supposedly the people who keeps their head down you know quiet and just kind of work away at the so-called american dream and behave you know and law abiding and all this stuff but like but the term is model minority so is there a model white model black (laughs) model brown 
you know, why is the model minority somehow applied always to Asian? Yeah. That begins to kind of not sit really well. And I never thought about it. I really, like, finally, you know, when I read Kathy Hong Park's book, Minority Feelings, that's when I finally realized, oh, everyone look at me that the first thing they thought about was, oh, here's like a Chinese person, a mm. Chinese woman. Yeah. Right? That's the first thing that they look at when they look at you. Right. right? So you're already labeled with this kind of racial label before anything else. And it's just been a very recent um, understanding. I'm sorry. Oh, I don't it's know okay. what the honking is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that really got to me that you're first judged by your color and your gender. Yeah. And I don't know why I never thought about it. And it's hard for me to express myself in words that I feel like are adequate to how I feel about race. Yeah. Um, So I don't even know if I talked about it in a good way at that forum, but like I think I had that experience and it's a very privileged experience of not feeling like a minority but then having that sort of shattered very quickly. Um, when I was first asked, like, would you want to speak at this forum? I kind of said, you know, not really, because I didn't have the typical Asian American experience. Like I wasn't made fun of as a kid for like my food or, you know, I didn't feel those, those things. I didn't have that added to my experience when I came across you know moving somewhere else and realizing that people were literally asking me where are you from well you don't look American I was like wait what (laughs) but you've been American your whole life yeah how are you right suddenly you're not American anymore what 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 was that like (laughs) I never I never experienced that before so I felt that privilege of not understanding why you know, minorities need support. And now I understand that, of course, but like at the time it was very eye-opening for me. Um, it's easy to forget when you live in somewhere like Los Angeles because there's so many more Asian people here. It's so diverse that it's a little easier to forget that people might look at you and the first thing they see is you're Asian or they might look at me and say, oh, you're Chinese. I mean, because yeah, right. they don't know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, the good that's coming out of such a tumultuous time for everybody is that I think we're understanding how much more interconnected and supportive we need to be. Like the experience I had in Hawaii, we weren't segregated. Like there was a lot of blending of culture. Um, and I feel like that needs to happen more so that we're better aware of each other's cultures and more understanding and more supportive of each other like we need to be supportive of black lives matter and vice versa for all of us to make change like we Mm -hmm. have to all band together right i mean there were two things that recently i've been thinking about one are you know all my caucasian um, ancestry friends right they're white and this term the white privilege right and you know there's been discussions with some of my friends they said well we don't have white privilege you know I have a massive student debt you know I'm not going so well in my career I didn't get the advantage 
you know, when I'm looking for a certain position, they gave it to a woman or they gave it to a minority person. So mm -hmm. I didn't get the opportunity to have those things. Um, and I don't really know how to talk to my friends that way. I mean, I think that they came to Los Angeles because, exactly because they want to be in a diverse community and they want to be part of uh, a kind of multicultural environment. But at the same time, there's a little bit of a resentment in some of them that I heard when things are not going well, that they, you know, that it goes back to like, you know, has there been too much affirmative action mm. on the part of minority? Um, and, but I think I go back to that very first thing, which is the first thing you see, you know, uh, the person is like, we're already as Asian Americans discounted at the first look yeah, because of the color and our, you know, and as women, our gender. They already form a kind of uh, a view of what you are. Yeah. Right? Whereas, I think a, a person who is white does not have to carry that discount. Right. In their daily encounter, and I don't know what that adds up to, and and I'm still trying to understand it. And there's nothing to, you know, discount about their own personal experience and other prejudices that are laid on top of them, you know, in in light of what my friends have said that, you know, positions have been taken away because of because he's white, like, you know, white mm. male, right? Or whatever. So that's one thing that I keep thinking about. You know, what can we how can we sort of continue to urge uh, friends such as those to kind of still join us in greater understanding of the interconnectivity between all people and yeah. and you know be an anti-racist yeah know? also with us and the other thing is like what you spoke about on about black life matters is the issue of allyship right that you know there's there's always been this kind of notion that asian people are white adjacent Right. Right. It's almost like the color spectrum or something <laughs> like that. And I continue to th have to think about that because I think that in some of my friends, and this is being, you know, so very frank and vulnerable about it, some of my friends who are African American would say that, yeah, you didn't have it as bad as we have. And yeah. it might be totally true. I yeah. mean, we certainly, you know, like in light of like recent stuff that we've discovered I mean we had no slavery like right in that kind of massive structural sense as um, as black people have but like even like it was really this year that I found out and you may be in the same boat I don't know about the 18 Chinese people who were killed in Chinatown in right. Los Angeles right right or the one of the 200 300 people that got shipped out you know from Seattle um, you know, within three hours, packed their bags, put on a steamboat, and sent back to China or something. Right. Right. We don't know any of those things. Um, and a lot of things are suppressed, you know, from history. Yeah. Right. We might have heard about Manzanar. Uh, that's about the extent of probably what's taught, you know, in high school U.S. history. Mm hmm. And I feel like we all have to 
like do our own little research or something or read more about and discover more about what has happened in the past and maybe insist that that gets into the history curriculum right you know for all americans yeah i think definitely the education needs to be better about all of that i don't know there's a lot to talk about like the talking about your friends i mean i sort of I feel like having had some privilege in my life and then feeling that security taken away makes me understand more. But so I think that, you know, a lot of times people will not fully recognize and appreciate that feeling of what it's like to be a minority unless it happens to them in some way. Like, um, I mean, just, you know, feeling like you, if you're walking alone at night, you have to have your cell phone ready and like you're, you know, this is what I'm going to do if somebody comes from here or, you know, whatever. Or like um, when I was younger and not, you know, the principal of a firm, you know, having had multiple experiences of walking onto a job site and then being treated a certain way or you know, I had a I had an experience at the at a city where I was meeting with someone to get a clearance and they took me in a conference room and shut the door and then started talking about all their sexual encounters with Asian women. I mean, like things like this if if you don't have to be worried about that happening to you, then you have privilege. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, that is privilege, right? Yeah. It's hard for me to fathom, you know, what it's like to just be worried about driving a car lawfully, you know, and being worried about... No. I mean, all the things that you heard about, you know, from our uh, black friends about how they have to raise their sons and daughters with the story. Yeah. How you need to behave, right? Yeah. Uh, when you get stopped, and which you will get stopped. Yeah. Right. And yeah, it's horrible. I think, yeah, it's, um, you know, because of our upbringing, no matter what, like my parents' generation, you think of them as, you know, my parents are, you know, slightly racist or a lot of racism going <laughs> on, you know, amongst Asian, different yeah. Asians too. And then to, to think about how much of that that we actually kind of absorbed ourselves and how really anti-racist we really are. You know, how many percent of us is still, you know, we're working through that kind of racist tendencies that yeah. we don't even know is racism, right? Yeah, so, yeah, it's, it's really kind of like you realize that it's a lifetime of work now that you have to do. I think the um, yeah. moderators of that event approached it well, though, because they started off talking about it being a safe space and being really nervous, because I think it's it's really hard to talk about race and feel like you're going to make a mistake in something you and say. And offend someone. Yeah. 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 It's like every time that, that people would say, you're racist if you're going to talk about race. and But in fact is not true because if you don't talk about it then you let the status quo continue you're not acknowledging that there is uh, a difference and there's discrimination out there you know yeah and so. we have to talk about it from our own perspectives in order to share 
because that's the only way we can be authentic and yeah it might be wrong (laughs) no it's i mean yeah i I think that you know in all my readings and stuff i I come to realize that it is true you're either a racist or you're an anti-racist or you're a racist becoming an anti-racist you know yeah and maybe you'll never become truly 100 percent anti-racist but you work towards it um so this very podcast that we're on right now you started this podcast in August of 2017 and and I think that um, you've interviewed more than 30 female leaders in our industry what are your biggest takeaway over the (laughs) past four years do you feel the podcast theme or mission will change or evolve um, if it continues (laughs) (laughs) yeah so what always surprised me was how generous and modest and humble and amazing everyone is like how how willing to share honestly and and kind of open up and help other people and i don't know i mean people are all these women are incredible like well i think part of it is your generosity that you know you you make a space for people to talk to you and it's a one-on-one conversation between girlfriends you know kind of thing (laughs) so the people can open up to you that way Um, so it's really the the way that you've set up these uh, interviews so you have to give yourself some credit for that (laughs) yeah it's kind of crazy thinking about like 2017 seems like a long time ago especially now (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but yeah I'm in such a different place in my life and I think I feel a lot more confident about my career and myself because after talking to so many women who I see as truly amazing successful like incredible like everything they've accomplished is in my mind like I a lot of times I'm like, I don't know how these people did it, you know? Um, but what's interesting is seeing just how like normal everybody is and seeing, being able to relate like, oh, I'm that same way. Or, you know, I, I feel this relationship with this person like this, this piece is very similar to me. I think seeing all that, I, it gave me so much more confidence too. That's what I hope other people are getting too. Yeah, I think that we've enjoyed your series all these years and hopefully you will pick it up again. (laughs) (laughs) I know you're taking a little break for your baby and stuff. So um, yeah, we hope this can continue because I don't think we have a very good archive of oral history of all the women in our field, especially in Los Angeles, right? And you are actually making that uh, history right now. Yeah, part of me is a little bit heartbroken to have to pause or end or pause. I don't know what it's going to be, but because I don't feel like I got to everybody. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like there's so many. See, that's a reason to continue, right? (laughs) So don't say stop, just say pause. (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, the AWA plus D, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Association for Women in Architecture and Design. I think 
is there a grant or a fellowship that allows you to kind of fund the beginning of this podcast series that you created? You were also the president of AWA Plus D from 2019 to 2020, uh-huh. and you currently serve as their parliamentarian. Tell us why it's important for you to serve on behalf of this organization, and you know what do you see is lying ahead for AWA Plus D? Well, I think their mission of empowering women and being more inclusive, not just limiting it to architecture, but having interior designers and landscape architects and engineers and planners as part of the membership, really, uh, that really spoke to me as well because we don't work in isolation. (laughs) And I think there's a much broader way for us to all practice. I mean, I think that you and I really align on on that. Right. Um, so I think that was was something that really drew me, and then I it was really the people of AWA Plus D and AWAF that really kept me kind of involved and motivated to keep giving back because it's such a supportive community. Like I've never really experienced that before in a professional organization mm-hmm. so um, yeah I mean that's that's the reason for me why personally I feel so strongly about supporting them and and serving with them and um, I think as far as the future it's hard to predict because the the presidency and the board kind of changes over every year mm-hmm. So while there are, you know, people who volunteer their time for many years with the group, um, there is some openness because it's such a small organization and a small group running it. There's flexibility to kind of make it what we want and be more nimble. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure exactly about the future. Um, In my mind, it has to be about allyship. Um, women on their own can only get so far, uh, and or anyone, for anyone. That matter. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's important to have a more intersectional. We have to be not looking at equality as a women's issue, but as a minority issue, as a gay, lesbian, transgender issue, as everything. Yeah. I, I I think we're we're all human. Yeah. <laughs> No, it, it gets back a little bit to maybe the issue of the importance we place on community versus yeah. the individual. And we know that, you know, the United States has always been this kind of dialectic between like the individualism, right? Right. You know, we always have the Marvel man, cowboy sitting on the horse kind of thing as the, our image of what the American person is. And then, you know, we always talked about our Asian communities as being like you are just part of this whole thing and the whole community is the most important thing right so it's a very sort of black and white way of looking at it and I think you know being in Los Angeles and having all the immigrant cultures that came in and and the kind of sense of community 
um, and uh, understanding of the power of community, right? What one person can do versus what a whole group people can do. I, I think I was like over at LACMA with friend, you know, going through that um, the Nara exhibit that's going on right now, and you know, my friend mentioned it's amazing that you know during the uh, you know after Hiroshima or something like that that no matter where you are as a Japanese person in the world you know and this I think um, you know whether Nara was actually in Berlin and somebody is somewhere else and they're Japanese people they all like collectively start reacting to that uh, that horror of Hiroshima uh, you know, because they are part of the community, that community connection is so strong that they could be spread across the whole world, but they're all thinking about it. They're mm -hmm. all responding. They might not even know anyone mm -hmm. who was in that situation, who has been victimized by that. But um, yeah, it, it really got me to thinking about the, you know, one of the things I appreciate a lot about actually my own heritage is that there is this kind of strong sense that community is important, right? I always loved that Hawaiian word for home, but it's not exactly home like Ohana. Oh, oh, uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, it's not exactly home. Yeah. It's not equivalent, right? It's, uh, yeah, it's like family. I mean, in Hawaii, for sure, there's, I think because there's more Asian culture embedded in the local culture, it's just like kind of normal for me to have grown up with my grandparents in the same house and you know actually my great-grandmother was in the house at one point too and that sort of extended family like everybody's auntie or uncle yeah there's yeah a really strong sense of community um what you're talking about with hiroshima it's really interesting because uh, my parents took me to visit when i was in grad school i think it was really impactful to visit Hiroshima and go to the museum and understand that part of history. For me, it was even weirder because my grandfather, so my great-grandparents immigrated to Hawaii as sugarcane plantation workers. So my, my grandfather, when World War II happened, I'm not exactly sure why, but they didn't really... Um, do like an internment camp for all the Japanese in Hawaii because I guess there were too many. There's too many. Yeah. <laughs> they would have to lock everyone up, right? But like, then where are they gonna go? They just lock, keep them in the on the island. Yeah. But so while on the mainland U.S., all of the Japanese Americans were being shipped off to internment camps and stripped of all their belongings, even though they were U.S. citizens, my my grandfather and some of the local um, Nisei, the, the second generation Jap Japanese men, they actually volunteered to fight for the U.S. And so he was part of that where they went to Europe and fought there and they were very celebrated. Like, Yeah, I mean, it's one of the most celebrated troops were the ones with the Japanese American, right? Yeah. yeah. For, like for bravery and, yeah. So, I, know, I mean... Are, I can't imagine, you know, how they might have felt like they may have still had family. Like, I think, you know, they, my grandfather probably had family in Japan still. 
when all of that was happening and with the the bombing so yeah i don't know he and he never really talked about it yeah yeah i think my parents generation too they don't tell us a lot about their suffering yeah you know and um i always thought it was kind of strange too that the you know we're basically my parents were immigrants because they left china to run away from the communist rule right and went to hong kong and then they send me away from hong kong being afraid that 97 will come and right. then i'm under communist rule again that they had tried their whole life to escape from and uh, you know so it's a and then i'm looking at my daughter and just say she never had to do that i mean unless she chooses to go to another country now right and what it means to be uh you know in the majority and suddenly you immigrate and you recognize you're a minority and that uh how that changes the way you view yourself and um and your place in the whole community yeah 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 it's I don't know. It's also a stronger internally I think it's a stronger character building in a way. Like I feel like um having gone through living in different places where I've had to adapt to different cultural ways of being like I think has only made me a stronger person. Yeah. I mean, I I I will say that that's also a privileged sort of position to be in because not everyone will say that <laughs> yeah it reminded me of you know my conversation with billy tian in the powerful symposium where she talked about the two worlds that she straddled you yeah know? and is that if i want to i'll pivot over to my chinese side and if it works for me better i'll pivot to my you know new jersey raised you yeah. know american side and in a way she looked at it very positively as like i got more things to work with uh because of these dual identity and you know we can explore that right <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah even my daughter i think whether it's intentional or not she knew that she was she looked more white and she doesn't look chinese so growing up um she's white passing totally right yeah and then it wasn't until she's in her mid 20s and and with black lives matters that she realizes that there's a part of her and that everything rushes back about how she participated or was a bystander on like you know jokes against Asians among her school friends and stuff when in fact she was the kind of butt of the joke half of her is yeah. right yeah yeah and how that impacted her and the way that she described herself now which i'm happy you know that both her chinese side her mainly scandinavian side of the heritage now she embraced equally so audrey thank you so much yeah sure it's so nice to be able to chat with you. that's our show Thank you to Annie Chu for the time and energy she spent interviewing me in her beautiful backyard. Her support is just another example of the generosity and kindness I've discovered within this unique Los Angeles community of women in architecture. 
I'd like to thank each of the guests I've had on the show for opening up and sharing your stories. Thank you to the Association for Women in Architecture Foundation for kickstarting this project. In particular, thanks to Lise Bornstein for your mentorship during my fellowship year and your continued encouragement and support beyond. Thank you to my husband, Lyndon, who's believed in me with every leap I've taken and for a partnership that makes life more enjoyable. Thank you to all of my loyal listeners and to my friends at AWA Plus D who have kept me motivated to keep doing the show and putting in the work these last few years. And finally, I'd like to thank the women architects and their allies who have paved the way so that the challenges I face today are not the same ones they had to go through. This show is dedicated to all of the feminist practitioners out there continuing to push for a more equitable and inclusive future. I'm your host, Audrey Sato. It's been a pleasure to be part of your lives these last few years. To find out more about this podcast and listen to previous interviews, you can find me at xx-la.com or search for me on the app of your choosing. You can also find me at XXLA Podcast on social media or email me at hello at xx-la.com. I'd love to hear from you. Bye for now.